morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you, Connor. How are we doing this morning, church? I'm doing really well. Uh, weekend had a lot of joy, just as I mentioned a little bit earlier. But in case you have not noticed, the country in which we live is a rather diverse place. That reality is not new. Um, in fact, it's been that way as long as our country has been around. But the way that it is starting to feel seems a little bit new to us. One of the values that this country was founded on was the freedom to lead your own life, as long as it did not impede on those same liberties for other people, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, where you could exercise your beliefs about the world without fear of a government body keeping you from doing that. And for a long time, it, it seemed that like this country was going to be a Christian, a Christian country with other groups in the minority. And that is certainly something that we can hope for, something that we can pray for to one day live in a Christian society, a a society where people love God, a a society where people love his son Jesus. There's a great deal of value that comes when you exist in a place like that where you know the people around you are seeking God's values. Ideally, that would be a very peaceful place, and it would certainly be a very generous place. In fact, in the Old Testament, when the prophets were anticipating the day of the Lord, this is exactly what they envisioned. A space and a time where all people would come to the mount of the Lord and anxiously await his law. There is real value that comes from living in a complete God-worshipping society, and it's something that we should long for. But that ideal future is not today. And it's certainly not in this country, and it is certainly not right now at this time. The country that we live in can be described as a pluralistic society, one with lots of different ideas and worldviews and mindsets. And it seems to be really popular to look at the problems that are happening in our world and then to look at the other groups of people and blame it on them. Blame everything on the people who are not Christians. But is pluralism really a a problem? Is living in a pluralistic society really a problem? From where we are at this point in redemption history, with Jesus enthroned and us waiting for his return, I'd say that where we are right now is not a problem at all. Sure, pluralism might mean that we are going to be faced with pressing issues, and it might mean that we will have to 
evaluate the things of the world and decide if they are good or decide if they are not from God. But just because we are increasingly surrounded by diverse worldviews and sometimes worldviews that can even be hostile to Christianity, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's not even a surprise because Jesus told us that this would happen. And when we're confronted with hostility from the outside, we need, as Christians, to have so much patience for them. Because as we're going to see this morning, the battle is not us against them. It's all of us against sin. Last week, Tom introduced this idea to us that the message that the church has is not just for us, it's not just for Christians. It's for, it's for them, too. It's for all people. Christians are called to be in the world, but we're not called to be of the world. But have Christians maybe taken that idea a little bit too far, trying to remove ourselves from the world altogether? I encourage you to go back and listen to Tom's message last week as he surveyed some of the different places in the New Testament where the Bible talks about our responsibilities to have an influence for God right where we are. We've been considering what it means to put each other first, to use our relationship with God for the, benef- uh, for the betterment of our brothers and sisters. But what about for the betterment of our enemies? In November, we considered our faith, our relationship with God, with this perspective. How can I use my relationship with God to aid my brothers and sisters? Not just what am I getting out of my relationship with God, what am I getting out of my relationship with God? But how is that relationship shaping me to be a good brother or sister in Christ? This month, we're taking a similar approach, but instead of turning inward to each other, we're looking outward. Because you aren't just called to put your brothers and sisters first, you're also called to put your enemies first, too. If you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus even just a little bit, This is probably a concept that you're familiar with, to love your enemy. But how ready are we to embrace that? The gospel that we have, the good news that we have is for our enemies too. Are we willing to give it to them? Are we willing to submit to our enemies just as we're willing to submit to our friends? We're going to return to Romans chapter 12 where Paul rounds out the responsibilities of the church not just to each other, but even to those who are outside and even those who are hostile. A few weeks ago, I said that being a part of a church is not optional. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the body of Christ. Do you want to know what's even less optional than being a part of a church if you're a Christian? Loving your enemies. Throughout the rest of the year in our sermons, We'll continue to try to reprioritize our faith by thinking about how our relationship with God can be used to influence others, to influence not just me, but even even others who don't know God, even others who maybe know a little bit about God and are hostile to the idea, even them. And while we do this, we'll ask this question. What does my community need from me? What can I do to make my life a living sacrifice? 
We're going back to Romans 12 this morning where we have been for the last month or so, and I invite, uh, invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles if you have them, or, or, or to click and slide and scroll uh, as well. While you are finding Romans 12, I want to I remind us of something that Jesus says about loving your enemies. Even the sinners love those who love them. Even the non-believers will return love to those who have already given love to them. What about the followers of Christ? How would Jesus respond, say, to the people who hate him? How might Jesus respond to the people who, I don't know, would be willing to kill him out of hatred? As long as we live in a pluralistic society, there will be seasons where things seem good and there will be seasons where things seem bad. But regardless of how it seems, our call as Christians to love our enemies will never change. Because we're not alone in this world. And while we wait for our king to return, we have to figure out how to exist, how to exist with others. Because remember, Jesus died for all people, even enemies of the cross. Something which you and I once were. Again, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with, with the lowly. We read this scripture a couple weeks ago, and we considered it from the viewpoint of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Based on what we're about to read, this same challenge applies to our enemies as well, to rejoice with our enemies and to weep with our enemies. The call to live in harmony with one another is not just for those who are good, it's for the lowly too. Our responsibility to be submissive does not stop with our friends. One of the reasons that this is so, as we've been considering, if we are Christians, is that our body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is something that the New Testament describes of us individually, but also communally as a church, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And if we are a temple of God's presence, then when people are, are around the temple, they should be treated with Holy Spirit ideals. Think the fruit in Galatians 5. Our presence around other people it should feel like we are, God's, we are God's people. The aroma of our hearts, it says, should smell like God's people. And part of our being indwelled in the Holy Spirit is that day by day we are being sanctified. We are becoming more like God. We're becoming more like the people that God created us to be. But we're also recognizing that the people around us were created for those same purposes. And we're going to treat them as such. Even if they have not realized it yet or accepted it yet, every single person around you has the capacity to bear the image of God. In fact, it's something that they were, that they were created with. And one of our responsibilities as Christians, as temples of the Holy Spirit, is to show the restoration that's available to all people. Let's press on in Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And we'll come back to this verse a lot. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably 
with all people. Once again, Paul continues with our call for how to treat others. And the ideal might be familiar to you, but it doesn't make it any less true that we are called to love even those who would give us evil. As far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all people. As far as it depends on you, demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit to show God's image to others. Like I just mentioned a moment ago, when we become Christians, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are, uh, we are justified by the blood of Christ, washed clean of our sins, but we are also undergoing this process of sanctification where we're becoming more like our, our creator, our, our created purpose. This means exhibiting God's values to the people around us, even if they would say otherwise, even if they would do otherwise. It means showing people mercy and justice and righteousness, the things that we have received. Becoming like God means giving people what God is giving, has already given us. And it's the same thing that God has given to them, too. This is the big idea of this month. The gospel is not just about me. The gospel is for them, too. And we've got to treat them like they're worthy of the gospel. In other words, while we were giving God evil, Jesus gave us mercy and demonstrated justice, and he instilled in us righteousness. And as far as it depends on you, regardless of what other people are giving to you, you are going to show them the power of the Holy Spirit. What types of people, is Paul saying, are worthy of this type of treatment, that is worthy of us giving them love? Maybe you have some people in mind right now, some people in your life who you, you, might, you might describe as, as your enemies. The New Testament has several different places that describes some of the people in which we're called to love, even with explicit descriptions of how Christians ought to treat those people. But one that comes to mind for me is Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to highlight a couple of those relationships. Ephesians chapter 5 opens with a call for Christians to walk in love as children of God. This means that Christians must remain pure, not participating in the things of this world. But it also means that our relationships, the way that we treat other people, is going to be influenced by our faith. It's going to be influenced by what we believe about Jesus. Paul goes so far to say that instead of being foolish and drunk with wine, he says, as the world does, instead we ought to address one another with psalms and hymns. Our interactions with others, what Paul is getting at, can be a beautiful melody to God. But without love, our relationships with others can also be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So since we are children of God, who are we called to love? What does that look like? We get a list of these types of people in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. If you're thinking of Ephesians 5, maybe one of the first things that comes to your mind is the section on marriage. The first set of people that we're called to love well is our spouses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, loving each other as, as they were your own bodies. Okay, 
yeah, Paul, that's probably an obvious one. I, th- I think we get that we're supposed to love our spouses. But without godly love and submission to one another, even the most fairy tale of m- marriage can one day become a clanging symbol. And the person that you once loved can become your enemy if there is not submission, if there's not selflessness. The, even the marital relationship needs intentional, continual, sacrificial love. We'll talk more about marriage, actually, in a couple months. But another seemingly obvious relationship that Paul says requires you as Christians to walk in love in, at the beginning of Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Our love in Christ has to penetrate these relationships as well. Without godly love, without the Spirit, these relationships, too, can become twisted. As I'm sure many of us are sadly too familiar, a parent's can become abusive, and children can become resentful. Remember, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's true even if your parents are poor examples, and that's true even if your children resent you. Having poor parents or having wayward children is not a sign that you're a failure, it is a sign that sin is present in the hearts of mankind. Because the battle is not us versus them, it's us versus sin. The last set of relationships in Ephesians chapter 6, that might be the least obvious, but love can still thrive just the same. He says, on servants or slaves, love your masters. Masters, treat your servants with the respect as they are the Lord's. In America, we're long since the past, we're long since past the realities of the slave-master relationship, but I think there are still some important ideas that we can learn from a passage like this. For one, Paul does not try to tell these slaves to try to not be slaves anymore. You don't really see Paul encouraging slaves to seek freedom from slavery. Isn't that interesting? I don't think Paul is advocating for slavery, but what Paul is saying here is whatever your situation, whatever your work environment, love your masters. Love them. Likewise, masters, even your most lowest of low workers, is still valuable to the Lord love them too. These are ideals that we can take into our workplaces, into our relationships, the people who are your superiors, who are just the most sinful, mean-spirited people that you've ever met. Hopefully not. Love those people. If you are a master, if you are in a place of authority, maybe over employees or over a group of people, even the person at the bottom of your totem pole. That person is made in the image of God. Love them and treat them like they are. 
what we glean from all these relationships, from the husband and the wife, the children, uh, 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 and the parent, the slave and the master, is that every person, no matter if they're as close to you as your spouse or they're as far away from you as a servant, every single person is worthy of love. Every single person is made in God's image. And if you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, then you are called to give those people what they were created for, love. In an increasingly pluralistic world, with all types of people and all types of worldviews, we're going to be presented with different types of relationships in our lives. And we're going to have the opportunity to demonstrate the Spirit of God in those circumstances. Loving people who are different from you does not mean confirming what they are doing. It does not mean conforming to what they are doing. It it does not even mean accepting what they are doing. But it does mean, loving those people does mean even people who are your enemies, even those who oppose you. It means recognizing that they are struggling with sin. And recognizing the battle that's being waged in their hearts and submitting to them, loving them, even if they are not giving you love. Because they are struggling with the side effects of selfish living. They are struggling with the war that's being waged in their hearts to satisfy fleshly desires instead of acknowledge the Creator. It's the exact same war that is being waged in our hearts. It's but it's the same war that Jesus has won for our hearts if we're Christians. If we have submitted to Jesus, then our war is won. And so when the people around us are quote-unquote enemies, other people who we would point the finger at or we would blame, their war is not against you. It's not. Their war that they aren't aware that they're fighting is with sin. And the way that we're going to love them is we're going to put down our weapons when they've raised theirs. And we're going to get on our knees and wash the feet of someone who could betray us. Since we live in a pluralistic world, here's two things that we're going to do. The first thing we have to do is we have to pray, pray, pray that Jesus would soften the hearts of our enemies. During the life of Jesus, the eyes and ears of the Jews became darkened by their own prejudices and ears, so much so that when they saw and heard Jesus, the Son of God, they killed him. We need to pray that our enemies today would be receptive to the cross. Not just so we aren't martyred for our faith, but so that our enemies' war with sin could be won by our Savior, so that our enemies don't have to live in the dark any longer. The second thing that we have to do if we're going to live in a pluralistic society is we have to pray that our hearts would be softened for the deep spiritual hurt that our enemies are experiencing. 
Because when we acknowledge that sinners are hurting, when we acknowledge that they are struggling in a spiritual fight that they don't understand, maybe we won't be so quick to judge them. And maybe we won't be so quick to alienate them. And maybe we won't be so quick to wonder that that person could never become a Christian. I'm not saying that we would wish hell on somebody. But I am saying that if we aren't willing to show our enemies love in this life, what are we wishing on them in the next? I know that it can sometimes be hard to love your enemies, to love those who are not giving you what you think you deserve. But when we realize that our enemies, even those who are most hostile to us, aren't really at war with us, but they're at war with sin, maybe we might be able to find a little bit of sympathy for them. Because they're human, just like us. And that struggling human who's wandering in the darkness and and swinging around is frankly just grasping for hope. That person is made in the image of God, just like us. Church, this morning we have a responsibility as temples of the Holy Spirit to bring God's presence to the people around us. The role that the temple played in the Old Testament, similar to the ark and the tabernacle, the cloud by day and the fire by night, was that the temple housed the literal presence of God for his people. Israelites could come to the temple to pray and offer sacrifices for sin and purification. They could come and ask for mediation from the priests on behalf of their households and their families. And maybe even more importantly, the temple was a sign to all of Israel that God is here. He is here in our kingdom. He is here in our midst. That's what the Israelites, Israelites believed. And eventually when the temple was destroyed during the sieges on Israel, the Israelites were devastated because God wasn't there anymore. At least, so it seemed. But God does not live in temples made by the hands of man. He dwells in the hearts of people who are his. And we are God's temples, vessels of the Holy Spirit. We ought to be a sign to the world that God is here. Our actions, the way that we love one another, the way that we love our enemies, must declare that God is here in our midst. The way that we shape our lives, the way that we model our families, the way that we work, the way that we live, must declare that God is here in our midst. Similar to the temple, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was the, port- was the portable embodiment of the presence of God. And when Israel would go to war, we see this in Joshua and in other places, the Ark of the Covenant would be uniquely situated among, among the warriors so that the people would be empowered by the presence of God to fight on God's behalf. And when the ark was not in the battle, like it was supposed to be, Israel lost. Israel lost badly. In the same way, you and I are uniquely situated somewhere in life with relationships and with people that are in the middle of a war that's being, that's being waged. And if God is not in that fight, those people will lose. 
Their salvation does not rest on your shoulders if they aren't unwilling to listen. But as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. As a vessel of the Holy Spirit, show your enemies love. Because their war is not with you, they need to be rescued from their sins. And only Jesus can do that. Since we're vessels of the Holy Spirit, let's give our enemies Jesus. If you have not become a Christian, if you have not given your life to Jesus, then sin still reigns over your heart, and you need to know that you're walking in darkness. You need to know that this is not what you were created for. You were created for community and union with our God and our Creator. And Jesus is the only way that you can do that. If you would like to learn more about who Jesus is and be baptized and receive the forgiveness of your sins, but also the power of the Holy Spirit within you, we would love to talk with you about that and love to help you make that happen. If you are a Christian and you have not been realizing the importance of your identity as a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you've been giving off an aroma to people that is not saying that God is here, and the actions in your life have not told people that God is present in their midst, and you need to confess your sins to the church, please make that known. Over the rest of the year, we'll continue to look at our enemies at quote-unquote, them. And as we do that, I hope we recognize that the gift of the Son, the gift of Jesus, the gift of the baby who was born in the manger is not just for me, it's for all people, so that all people could once again be with God as they were created to. If you have any need this morning, won't you make it known right now as we stand and as we sing?